Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Louisa Lim is the Stella Prize shortlisted author of Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong. The book begins with the recent protests, but dives back into the history of the island and Louisa's own relationship with the city she grew up in. Louisa Lim, welcome to you. Oh, thank you for having me. You write that while you were not born in Hong Kong, you were shaped by the city and its values. So what is Hong Kong for you? And what is your Hong Kong? Well, I grew up in Hong Kong and I grew up in um, Hong Kong quite a long time ago when it was a British colony. But I think there are these Hong Kong values that really have shaped me. And these are values that have kind of lasted through, you know, Hong Kong returned to Chinese sovereignty in 1997. Um, but those Hong Kong values are things like the value of hard work, of persistence. Uh, some people call it uh, a lion rock spirit because there was this um, soap opera called Underneath the Lion Rock, which was all about squatter families starting from nothing and sort of making a way through the world through this sort of hard scrabble life. And those are really kind of Hong Kong stories. You know, the richest man, Lee Ka-shing, he originally started, his parents had a flower factory. I mean, he started working in a flower, plastic flower factory when I think he was 13. And those are the kind of values that I think have shaped a lot of Hong Kong people. So that lion rock spirit, it is intrinsically um, aspirational, but also capitalistic, you could say. Originally, it was capitalistic. I think um, when people first started moving to Hong Kong, it was very much for economics. People were fleeing communist China to find another lifestyle, to you know, and to find a place where they could be, where they could make money. But in recent years, Lion Rock Spirit has really come to mean something else. And it, it has had a much more kind of political tone to it. You know, the idea of Lion Rock Spirit ran through the protests in Hong Kong, seeking more democracy, first in 2014 in the Umbrella Movement, and then five years later in 2019, when there were massive, massive protests in Hong Kong. And then Lion Rock Spirit started to be uh, something much more uh, values-based about seeking democracy, equity, fairness, that kind of thing. Speaking of the stories that Hong Kong tells itself, uh, tell me about the Lo Ting. The Lo Ting is this sort of fish-man hybrid creature, and he's really a kind of icon that Hong Kongers have adopted this figure um, that was written about in an early books, you know, dating back hundreds and hundreds of years. But then Hong Kongers really adopted this creature and it was something that was first taken up by an art curator who had these exhibition a series of three exhibitions about the Lo Ting, where he kind of invented a whole backstory. And then since then, this idea has taken hold and you see, you know, books and plays and portraits of the Lo Ting. And, it, you know, I think the idea of the Lo Ting is he's 
uh, amphibious, so can be in water, can be on land, <laughs> um, sort of lives between two worlds. And I think that's very much where Hong Kongers saw themselves and still see themselves because of their very complicated history. You know that the most, well, most of the stories about the handover of Hong Kong in 97 are again from a Chinese or British perspective. Tell me about the book you found by Steve Tsang and the perspectives of the prominent Hong Kong figures at that time. Yeah, so that was something that I just stumbled across in the course of my research. Um, I discovered in a library in Oxford just files and files of interviews with these really prominent Hong Kongers. And they were interviews which had been kept confidential for 30 years. And then they were released, but somehow they got forgotten about. So nobody really read them. Some of them were still filed away in the library system. And it was so interesting to me because... Um, these were the voices of Hong Kongers, these prominent Hong Kong advisors to the British government, who were really quite opposed to the way in which Hong Kong was handed back to China. And yet, because of their loyalty to the British and the fact that they'd signed the Official Secrets Act, they hadn't really been allowed to speak publicly. And many of them had died. And so these were almost like voices from beyond the grave. And though these interviews were carried out in the late 80s and the early 90s, they were warning about things that were happening as I wrote the book. So it was this really astonishing moment for me where sort of across the years, I stumbled across this whole treasure trove of interviews that cast a completely different light on that whole handover process. I mean, you know, now if you read the histories of that time, it's almost as if that was the, you know, the decision to hand Hong Kong back was inevitable. And yet when you read these interviews, you realise just how difficult it really was. I want to talk to you about the King of Kowloon. He became quite a famous figure for his graffiti. And you set out to write about the King of Kowloon. Tell me how that story shifted on you and how it ended up sort of changing your own gaze on Hong Kong itself. Well, when I was growing up in Hong Kong, I was really fascinated by this figure. Um, so he was an elderly man who was a trash sorter. And many people thought he was crazy. You know, they thought he was mentally incompetent because for half a century, he had had this graffiti campaign and he'd painted all over the city on the sort of, you know, the walls and the flyovers and the post boxes that and the lampposts, and he believed that the peninsula of Kowloon had originally belonged to his family, and it had been stolen from them in the 19th century when it was ceded to the British. And he, he was writing graffiti to claim his dominion over the city. And he was, you know, he'd always write the same words. He'd write, you know, I am the king of Kowloon, the emperor of New China, he'd sometimes write, and he'd write his family genealogy. Hmm. And, you know, the thing about his writing was it was really bad. It was not beautiful calligraphy. It was very misshapen because he'd only had two years of schooling. So it was kind of like a toddler's scrawl. And when I was growing up, you know, people literally thought he was mad. They would cross the road to get away from him. But over time, he became this iconic figure. In 1997, he had an art exhibition 
And he became, over time, Hong Kong's most valuable artist. And, you know, he played cameos in films and singers sang these songs about him. And I was just really fascinated by how it had come to be that this man, who people had thought was crazy, then became this iconic figure. And I wanted to know more. So I started to kind of track down the people who had known him and talk to them. And it just turned out that many of them were fascinating people in their own rights. And then when the protests started in 2019, many of them were people who were quite prominent in the movement. And I think it's because he was writing about those issues, territory and loss, sovereignty and dispossession. And those were the same issues um, that really were at the heart of those massive protests. I'm glad that we've arrived at the protest because if you've just joined me on RN Drive, I'm joined by Louisa Lim, who's talking about her book, Indelible City. I mean, the protests, the laws that have dominated news of Hong Kong over the last few years, what was your experience of those days, the tear gas, the banners, the umbrellas? Well, I was living in Hong Kong at the time when the protests started. And, you know, at the beginning, it was this extraordinary experience of community. You know, it's a city of 7 million people. And at its peak, it's estimated 2 million people. So almost a third of the population turned up to protest. It's a very dense city. So there were almost like rivers of people filling every available space between these skyscrapers. So in the beginning, it was very much a communal movement that was across, you know, old and young, all different kinds of people, ex- expats sort of, and and locals. And then, you know, over time, the protests really shifted a lot. Uh, there was tear gas used against protesters very early on, and the police were really um, used tear gas so much that it was quite normal to get tear gassed, you know. Sometimes you'd get tear gassed four or five times just out covering the protests and pepper spray as well, you know. It was, you know, it became normal. It was so normal that people used to joke about it. You know, you'd say, how is it out there today? And people say, oh, it's a tear gas buffet. <laughs> you even wrote about removing the things that identified you because they made you a target. That's very symbolic of how the press was treated at that time. That's right. In the beginning, we all made a huge effort, all the journalists. We, you know, we wore uh, sort of fluorescent jackets with press written bilingually in two languages and helmets with big stickers on them. And then we came to realise quite quickly that um, that did make you a target, that, you know, the press was getting tear gassed and pepper sprayed on purpose. And so that was when, you know, people started thinking about, should I actually identify myself as a member of the press or is it more dangerous? And I, you know, I had a particular moment on National Day in 2019, China's National Day, October the 1st, when a police officer pulled a gun and put it right in my face. He swung it in my face and I was wearing a press jacket at the time. And I was, you know, you always wonder what you would be like under pressure. And I was really very cowardly. (laughs) I was terrified. And after that moment, I really started to think, how much danger am I under wearing this 
the these things that identify me as a member of the press. So, so, so how did you balance the line between uh, being a journalist, an objective, trained observer, and, and becoming personally involved? Because given your own connection to the city, that that line of ethical journalism is difficult to, to walk. Certainly it gives you a background to be able to report more accurately. But, uh, we, you know, we, we're taught to stay neutral and keep ourselves out of the story. Did you find a limit to those traditions? Yeah, I really did. I mean, I think, I think it really changed my view of what ethical journalism actually means. You know, this idea that we are meant to be detached and neutral, I think it really comes from an era of parachute journalism when mostly Western correspondents flew into a place and reported on what they saw and then left. Um, and that they, you know, felt they could somehow hold themselves outside of what was happening and that that was the right thing to do. But, you know, I started to think about that and to think in doing that, you really lose a lot of the context of how things came to be that way. And when you lose that context, when you report, you're not necessarily serving the audience. I think the greater um, responsibility is to portraying events on the ground as they are. And, you know, I started thinking about it later on in the context of the Ukraine, you know, what was happening in Ukraine. If you wanted to be totally, <laughs> you know, this idea of balance, if you were to insert a Russian voice in every story that you did on Ukraine, how would that shift the reporting? You know, that's not necessarily balance. I think the job of a reporter is to report what they see, not to always balance one opinion with another. So I did begin to question how useful detachment is and, and whether it's actually possible to ever be truly objective. And I began to think that transparency and stating, you know, where your position is, is perhaps more useful to an audience. In your previous book, The People's Republic of Amnesia, you wrote about the 1989 protest movement and the way those protests have been pretty much eradicated, removed from Chinese history. One of, the, one of the central ideas of this book seems to be the power of words over truncheons in the long run. You even quote Basquiat, who says, I cross out words so you will see them more. Do you still have hope for the power of words, given what you've seen to your uh, your hometown? I do have hope. Um, and I have hope because... If you look at what has happened to Hong Kong, you see um, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of Hong Kongers have left Hong Kong in the last couple of years since the national security legislation has passed. And the reason they've left is because they want to live in a place where their words are not policed. They want to be able to remember the history of what they've seen and what has happened to Hong Kong and to be able to to talk about it. And I think, you know, words do have their power. Otherwise, we wouldn't see the way that China is really, you know, targets authors and playwrights in Hong Kong at the moment. And newspaper cartoonist Zunzo, who's one of the most popular cartoonists ever, has been a repeated target of the government. And th this is because of the power of words. You know, authoritarian governments really understand the power of words, and that's why they're so scared of these kind of people. 
Louisa Lim, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you more and get to know Hong Kong through your eyes. Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong is on the shortlist for the Stella Prize. The winner will be announced on April 27. I wish you all the best, Louisa. Oh, thank you so much. It's been really lovely talking to you, Andy. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.